This episode of Annotated is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. Want to give audiobooks a try for your next book club pick but don't know where to start? Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for great collections to get you going. With roundups like nine can't-miss spring debuts and listicles such as nine true crime audiobooks to enthrall you, tryaudiobooks.com provides themes to choose from along with suggested questions and discussion points for your next book club meeting. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot and bring your book club meetings to a new level. Start listening today. If you go into any bookstore or library and browse the dictionary section, you'd be forgiven for thinking there are hordes of people out there writing English dictionaries. A quick search on Amazon for English Dictionary returns more than 200,000 results. But the truth is, there aren't really that many people out there writing dictionaries. It's very, I mean, again, super tiny industry. I mean, there's like, there's fewer than 40 of us in the country. We all know each other. We've all worked for each other's companies. This is Corey Stamper, a lexicographer for Merriam-Webster and the author of the wonderful book about language and dictionaries, Word by Word. This is kind of funny, but the executive editor of the American Heritage Dictionary happens to be my neighbor. And so he and I go out all the time and we talk shop because that's what you do. And and it really, you know, lexicographers, we are all now at this point, and even back in the you know late 70s and early 80s, we were all being trained by the same people. It's not a big field. To a lay person, what do you think we would find most interesting that you guys are still trying to oh, haggle amounts amongst yourselves? Yeah. Oh, they're so ridiculous. Um, one that comes up frequently is what we call um, syllabification. So how do you put those dots in the middle of a dictionary word? You know, people think those dots mark spoken syllables, those dots actually mark where you can put a hyphen in the word if it needs to run over two lines. So different dictionaries have different syllabification rules. Really super sexy stuff right there. Um, I go back and forth with my neighbor about this. Merriam-Webster and American Heritage drop the dot in a different spot in the word English. So I think that Merriam-Webster's is E-N-G dot L-I-S-H, and American Heritage's is E-N dot G-L-I-S-H. I might be reversing those. I'd have to look it up. But we drop the dot in a different spot in English, and it's such a small word, and my neighbor and I, you know, will occasionally, you know, trash talk each other, basically, and be like, you don't even know how to break the word English. Come on. What do you people know? <laughs> oh, man, that's wonderful. Things in the dictionary world haven't always been this chummy, though. In fact, roughly 50 years ago, the dictionary world erupted with the explosive publication of a brand new edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it turned the world of dictionaries upside down. Gather round, everyone, for the story of the great dictionary war. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. In this episode, the story of Merriam-Webster's third edition and how it changed what we understand language to be. This episode of Annotated is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. 
As the premier publisher in the audiobook industry, Penguin Random House Audio is dedicated to producing top-quality audiobooks written and read by the best in the business. Today, they're recommending I Was Anastasia, written by Ariel Lawn and read by Jane Collingwood, Cian Thomas, and Ariel Lawn. This historical fiction novel delves into the infamous true story of Anna Anderson, a woman who was pulled from a Berlin canal in 1920, claiming to be the long-lost Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov. Is she the Russian Grand Duchess, a beloved daughter and revered icon, or is she an imposter? This saga spans Anderson's 50-year battle to be recognized as Anastasia, and will have your book club dying to discuss it. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash bookriot for more book club suggestions and other titles from Penguin Random House Audio. I just want to say Corey is a lot more charming than I am. Don't forget about me once you talk to her, okay? This is David Skinner, editor of Humanities Magazine and the author of The Story of Ain't about the publication of Webster's Third. And he is being far too modest. Anyway, David says that to start to understand what was so controversial about Merriam-Webster's third edition, or the third as it's commonly called, you have to understand what a monumentally influential work Webster's second edition was. Webster's second is really a gatekeeper dictionary. You have to realize that the dictionary previously was really viewed as a literary product, a cultural product, a kind of source of cultural uplift. This is an idea that the guy who invented American dictionaries would have nodded his head to. When Noah Webster began to write the first edition of Webster's Dictionary in 1807, he did it with a specific goal in mind. He wanted to unite the United States linguistically. And to do so, you need to standardize the various dialects and pronunciations and spellings that made up early 19th century America. The first edition comes out in 1833, and the second edition, with just a few minor changes, comes out a decade later and would become the dictionary of record for more than a century. In the 1920s, and the 1930s, and the 1940s, we see a kind of middle-class culture coming into being, especially with magazines like Time magazine and gumshoe writers and movies and radio, you see a kind of what I call a side-mouth English coming into view and understood to be what American culture really is like, more so than high culture. What a certain kind of person might call a decline in standards. Like so much else in American life, American language started to change dramatically after World War I and fast. And fast was not something that dictionaries to that time had dealt with particularly well. The Merriam-Webster Company didn't start working on the third edition until 106 years after the second edition saw its final printing in 1845. But by 1951, they knew they had to do something. The second edition just wasn't cutting it anymore, for a couple of related reasons. With the GI Bill and the baby boom, there was a huge new market for dictionaries. More people were going to college, becoming educated, and becoming the kind of people that wanted and could buy dictionaries. The dictionary and reference market suddenly was a huge moneymaker, which is something that Noah Webster, who basically died bankrupt, could have never imagined. And these new buyers were also entering a new linguistic world. It was more than just pop culture that had infiltrated the hearts and minds of American speakers. In their intervening century between the second and third editions, science had moved out of the lab and into the social world, and it had something new to say about language itself. In the 20th century, dictionary makers, lexicographers, basically come under the influence 
of linguistics, because the linguists simply know more about language than the lexicographers. So they take a very different view of the language, whereas lexicographers and grammar school teachers, people at large often think of language as simply a question about what's correct and what's not correct. The linguist does not start with the same set of questions that a grammar school teacher starts with. The linguist asks, how do people actually speak? They start with a blank pad and a pen and a recording device. They write down what's actually happening in the spoken language. And all later accounts of that language, dictionaries, grammars, begin with that that simple act of recording information of how the language is actually being used. This idea is a radical departure from the second edition of Webster's. That dictionary, which had reigned for a century, didn't just define words. It was also a kind of an encyclopedia that included the names of famous people, literary characters, and place names. It was a desktop repository of knowledge and fact. Not an account of how people talked, but an arbiter of what was right and what language should be. It calls itself the supreme authority. And it's marketed as something that practically has the answer to any question you might ask. So it has all sorts of encyclopedic information in it, all sorts of information about words. It's, it's a vast, vast book. That's the idea. It's a kind of godlike dictionary. It's all-knowing. Or that's, that's the image. Webster's knew that a new dictionary was needed just to account for the explosion of new words that came out of two world wars, the Industrial Revolution, and of scientific terminology that had crossed into the mainstream. It was the man chosen to be the editor-in-chief of the third who wanted to do more than just write a new dictionary. He wanted to rewrite what dictionaries were. His name was Philip Gove, and he wasn't an obvious choice to head up the most influential dictionary in the world. And once the decision is made to appoint him to run the dictionary project that becomes, that delivers Webster's Third, basically the, the whole controversy is, is, is very, very likely. He is such a radical skeptic about the stability of words and meanings that he is indeed a very strange choice for the head of a dictionary. Gove had been an academic who studied 17th and 18th century dictionaries before joining Webster's as an assistant editor. And he got the job running the creation of Webster's Third because he was sort of just there. They already started talking about bringing in an executive editor or an editor-in-chief to do revisions back in the 40s. Then the war happens and you lose a whole bunch of editors because they're all conscripted, they're all drafted, they all leave. Then they come back. One guy who we've pegged as the EIC doesn't work out. We bring in another guy. He doesn't work out. Now it's the 50s and we're scrambling and this thing's been sort of on hold business-wise for 20 years. And, And if you can't move forward on a product, you're losing money on it. So Gove comes in with big plans. His goal is to lead Webster's in a graceful shift from prescriptivism, meaning the dictionary's primary role is to declare the proper usage of language, to descriptivism, which means its role is to catalog how people actually use language. Unfortunately for all involved, Gove isn't exactly what you would call a charmer. Throughout Philip Gove's career, he was noted for his lack of tact, his lack of diplomacy. He was naive in a way that 
very honest, sincere, educated people sometimes are in thinking that the only thing that matters are the facts of the case. And because the third ended up being such a radical departure from how dictionaries had always been, Merriam's had a publicity and marketing challenge on its hands, a task that Gove was both uninterested in and incapable of doing. He could not do that. He, was, he, was, he did not have the talent, the instinct, the desire to do any of that. Um, and so that's what helped sort of create the situation he found himself in. He had a, a tinier, no, no pliable sense of the zeitgeist that he was running into. The magnitude of the change Webster's was making would have been hard enough to communicate and explain to the public at large, even if Gove would have anticipated the kind of reaction it would get. But he couldn't see it. He didn't feel it. And so he couldn't really prepare for it. And the reaction was swift and severe. The day after Webster's announced the new edition and the reasoning behind it, newspapers and magazines around the country just absolutely started crushing it. There were op-eds against it in the Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, the Toronto Sun, and on and on. And it wasn't just criticism, it was a full-on panic that Webster's Third was some sort of sign of the cultural apocalypse. Was just anything allowed? Could anybody say anything and never be wrong? And that's bad, right? The most eloquent and influential criticism came from Dwight McDonald in an essay in The New Yorker. He rather neatly captures the existential crisis that the Third elicited in some circles. He writes, if the language is allowed to shift too rapidly without challenge from teachers and lexicographers, then the special character of the American people is blurred. So the critics had their knives out and Webster's press release put the third on the carving plate. The most notorious entry, the one for ain't, which is so easy for critics to pick out and say, hey, ain't isn't a real word and shouldn't be in the dictionary. That's the entry Webster's included in the press release. It was almost like they were goading critics by leading with a word they knew would make traditionalists mad. And on top of that, they screwed it up. So the entry for Ain't is one of these difficult to read, somewhat equivocating usage notes, not that well written, that you find in this dictionary. And it says, though disapproved by many and more common in less educated speech, comma, used orally in most parts of the U.S. by many cultivated speakers especially in the phrase, ain't I. Two, substandard. This, this is not really an endorsement of ain't, but it's so partially quoted that the press release gives you the impression that Webster's Third is indeed describing the word ain't as a part of cultivated speech. And it's not really an accurate description of the usage note itself. So, Merriam-Webster's own press release took the most notorious word in the English language and made it sound <laughs> made it sound like their new dictionary, their new expensive dictionary that took years and years to build, recommended it for cultivated speech. That the publicity around the third was so clumsy and tone deaf made it an easy target. It was easy to mock, but even as the message might have been bungled, the ideological change was real and right and it was here to stay. The days of looking to the dictionary for what was right or a real word were over, and that was hard to grasp. I think that dictionaries, to a certain extent, certainly historically, played into that really up until the third. Even though there was, they were kind of riding this line between recording the language, there was also a lot more commentary on the language, a lot more editorializing on the language that happened in some of these more historic dictionaries. And that editorialization really kind of 
was supposed to come to an end with the third. And I think a lot of what people complained about was that the third in not editorializing in not calling things uneducated or illiterate was sort of, you know, we've abandoned the gates and we've joined the barbarians and English is just going to fall all to hell. That is not to say that all criticisms of the third proved to be wrong or backwards. The fact is that the scope of the project was so vast and the constraints so tight that it made it almost impossible to get right the first time. The new dictionary brought on a whole new worldview about language. It got rid of more than a quarter million words and added tens of thousands of new ones. And on top of that, Gove reimagined both what a definition was and also how it was written. The black books, which are the memos that Gove wrote about defining technique and They're enormous. And like I said, they get into so much detail. Why do we use the boldface colon? Here's a 15-page essay on why we use the boldface colon. Where can you put a space? Can there be punctuation? What kinds of authors are we looking to quote? So Gove is changing what a dictionary does, how it does it, and the scale at which it does it. And this just isn't new for potential buyers of the dictionary. This is a revolution for the people actually making the thing. This is kind of an, a, an overturning for all of the editors that are there. And so you've got this staff of, you know, anywhere from 20 to 60 editors, depending on when you're, when in the process you are, who are learning a new defining technique, who are being asked to completely revise uh, what ends up being something like, you know, 500,000 definitions. And Gove was sort of addicted to outside consultants who would come in, define a scientific word, but this in itself was a new paradigm too. Add it all up, and the third was groaning under the weight of its various, sometimes even competing ambitions. The third was a huge, huge work. I mean, the amount of work that went into it, and you had lots of staff changes happening in the 12 years that it was being written. You know, I think that at a certain point, some of the editors who were sort of revising and looking at these consultants' slips, just kind of were like, oh, fine, whatever. And the most notable casualty of the third scope was, well, it was hard to read and use. It's a smart dictionary, it's a thorough dictionary, it's a very useful dictionary, but it is not written in a persuasive manner. It's not easy to read, where it has a choice between being kind of complicated and opaque and being simpler and a little bit transparent, it chooses complicated and opaque. He wanted a definition to be just sort of one long, endless phrase to which you kept adding all the details that you needed to be a part of it. This, this led to some incredibly weird definitions that were very hard to read, hard to assimilate, and They just sort of helped strengthen the impression people had of this dictionary as coming to them in a lab coat. It definitely has failings. One of the things that I find as I look at the third is it's a heavily scientific dictionary, which I think kind of fits with where Gove wanted to take the dictionary. I think he wanted it to be something that was scientifically rigorous, but you can't understand half of the definitions of, you know, common science terms like oxygen or heart, because they just go, you know, they go on for 700 words and you're kind of lost in the middle of 
oxygen's molar weight. But ultimately, whatever mistakes Gove made were of execution, not of intent. And while he might not be remembered as the greatest lexicographical stylist to ever write a definition, he defined a new way of understanding how language worked and what dictionaries should be as a result. He revolutionized the way that definitions are written, period. That's just how it is. I think we all acknowledge that Gove's changes were really innovations that set what the modern dictionary looks like, regardless of platform, frankly. He's definitely sort of honored in the pantheon of, of lexicographers who have made a difference. Gove himself could never quite let go of the criticism that the third received, and it would bother him for the rest of his life, even as his fellow dictionary writers followed his lead. What's interesting is that at Merriam-Webster, sort of the general understanding is that the fact that the third was not universally heralded as being amazing just ate at Gove for the rest of his career. I mean, he spent most of the last years of his time at Merriam-Webster sort of, you know, writing individualized letters of defense to different people who were attacking the third. A side effect of this new mandate for a dictionary to be a reflection of how people actually speak is that the work of making dictionaries and writing definitions has to go much faster has to be responsive to change in a way that it never was before. Multi-decades-long breaks between editions were now absurd. So even as Gove tried to answer every barb pointed at his baby, the new speed of lexicography made responding to criticism impossible. There's no time to worry about critical reception. The lexicographer finishes one dictionary and then immediately picks up in another because language is always moving and you're never going to keep up with it. So you can't take the time to sort of mope and say, oh, they didn't, nobody liked my definition for fish stick. You know, I mean, no one, like, that's, that's beside the point. You just have to keep going. You know, it's interesting, though, that if you ask most people today, educated people that say they care about language and spelling, I think most of them still sort of want a dictionary to tell them what is right. Weirdly, our shared definition of a dictionary is still catching up. I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and I have pretty much never met a single person who knows that the dictionary is just a record of the language as it's used. Most people assume the dictionary is there as sort of the gatekeeper of good and proper English. You know what those people could do if they wanted to find out what a dictionary is? Are you saying they could look it up? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. Well played. Hit me with it. Okay. Here is the first definition for dictionary according to Merriam-Webster Online. A reference source in print or electronic form containing words usually alphabetically arranged along with information about their forms, pronunciations, functions, etymologies, meanings, and syntactic and idiomatic uses. It's so neutral. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But I guess what's important is what isn't there. There isn't any reference to correct or right or true or proper anything. It's a reference, a tool for understanding. Philip Gove would be so proud, though he'd probably want it to be three times longer. (laughs) Here's the other thing. The third was an enormous commercial success, in no small part because it was being written up in every publication and talked about around educated dinner tables everywhere. It was so lucrative that competitors sprang up, including the American Heritage Company, which you can tell from the name positioned itself as the conservative alternative to Webster's. There was a hot new thing to sell, the dictionary. Thank you. 
This episode of Annotated was produced and written by me, Jeff O'Neill. Production assistance from Jeremy Desmond and Kyle O'Neill. The paperback edition of Corey Stamper's Word by Word is out now. And if you like this episode even one tiny bit, you are the kind of person who will love it. So go buy it. And if you want to wade further into the waters of the story of Webster's Third, then David Skinner's The Story of Ain't is the book for you. Thanks to Penguin Random House Audio for sponsoring this season of Annotated. And if you like Annotated and want there to be more, the best, the most helpful thing you can do right now is to go rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And telling other people to listen to it doesn't hurt either. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>